it started like so many evenings. Mom and dad at home and Jimmy playing after dinner. Mom and dad were absorbed with jobs and lost track of time. It was a full moon and some of the light seeped through the window. Mom finally glanced at the clock and exclaimed, Jimmy, it's time to go to bed. Go up and I'll come up and settle you later. Unlike usual, Jimmy went straight upstairs to his room. An hour or so later, his mother came up to check if all was well. And to her astonishment, found that her son was uh, sitting, staring out the window at the moonlit scenery. I'm reading this straight from a book. uh, I don't want to get the words wrong. What are you doing, Jimmy? I'm looking at the moon, Mommy. Well, it's time to go to bed now. And the boy... As the boy settled down, he cryptically said, Mommy, you know one day I'm going to walk on the moon? Years later, that little boy suffered a near-fatal motorbike crash, uh, which broke almost every bone in his body. He fought through the recovery, and 32 years later, after that, or 32 years after that strange moonlit night, uh, James Irwin stepped on the moon's surface, one of only 12 representatives of the human race to ever do so. Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. was a doctor. As such, he was interested in the use of ether for knocking patients out before procedures. In order to know how his patients felt under its influence, he once had a dose administered to himself. As he was going under in a dreamy state, a profound thought came to him. He believed that he had successfully grasped the key to all the mysteries of the universe. When he regained consciousness, however, he was unable to remember what the insight was. Because of the great importance this thought would be to mankind, Holmes arranged to have himself given ether again. This time, he had a stenographer present to take down the great thought. The ether was administered, and sure enough, just before passing out, the insight reappeared. He mumbled the words, the stenographer took them down, and he went to sleep confident in the knowledge that he had succeeded. Upon awakening, he turned eagerly to the stenographer and asked her to read what he had uttered. This is what she said. The entire universe is permeated with a strong odor of turpentine. (laughs) If you're new here, you're going to quickly learn um, that there's one word I throw around a lot. A couple years ago, you couldn't sit through a message without hearing it 10 or 12 times. It actually undergirds a great deal of what we do here. Um, Anybody know what that word is? Tension, yeah, the word tension. When you hear me use this word, I'm not talking about um, the intense pressure on your belt when you uh, eat too much fast food while finishing um, a church building. I'm also not talking about that feeling in the room when your three-year-old named Rebecca looks across the table at one of your closest friends and says very affectionately, you're fat, just like my dad. That's that's great tension too, but I'm talking... That's not the tension I'm talking about. I'm talking about um, the tension that generates faith. And if we're honest, also doubt. I like to define it like this. Tension is a balance between an interplay of opposing elements, ideas, or tendencies. The balance between an interplay of opposing elements, ideas, or tendencies. For instance, a key element of our faith uh, is that God is one. We serve one God. Amen. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is God. And we serve one God. St. Augustine used to say, to believe in the Trinity, you have to believe seven true statements. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son or the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father or the Son. 
And the seventh true statement, there's one God. He said, if you can believe all seven true statements, you understand the Trinity. It's a tension between opposing elements and tendencies. So you'll hear that word a lot around here, the word tension, because at Open Table, we don't fear doubt. We don't fear the doubt that comes with faith. Although we are passionate about Jesus, committed to the Scripture, and completely and fully committed to the Orthodox Christian theology, uh, we also recognize this is a faith. It's a faith, and, and none of us have it all locked down. So we don't ever have like a list of truth statements we make somebody to assent to, to be part of us. That's not who we are. In fact, you could come up to me afterwards and go, this, I don't believe a word of this. this I feel like you're telling bedtime stories, and, uh, and I don't buy any of it, but I like the people. I kind of dig the place. I want to stay. I would say absolutely stay and be part of us. You won't be held outside. You won't be treated differently. You won't be you know, ostracized. Come and be part of us. Bring, bring your questions and your doubts and your curiosity because we all have them. We all have them. We all live in the tension of what it means to have faith, of what it means to believe with all of our hearts something we can't prove empirically. And that's a tension. Well, the reason I bring up tension tonight is because in a practical sense, this morning, <laughs> I'm going to get that. Judy's going to keep me on track until it's rewired. Not tonight, this morning. <laughs> yeah, a couple years and I'll have it down is because in, in a practical sense, there's no greater tension than dreams and visions uh, for the Christian. Because, as we found in our first two stories, they either mean everything or they mean nothing. And we uh, are left in the tension of deciding which. This morning, um, we're going to read about a dreamer named Joseph and hopefully find something more than a universe permeated with the smell of turpentine. So Jacob settled again in the land of Canaan where his father had lived as a foreigner. This is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Billah and Zilpah. So Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. Okay, real quick confession. The kids aren't here, so you can be honest. How many of you actually kind of secretly love the tattletale more than any? Come on, don't, don't let it be just me. Right, the one who you, in your heart, you're kind of like, eh, you shouldn't tattletale. But if you're honest, you know you would have absolutely no idea what was going on in your own house without them, and so you kind of love them more. Okay, don't tell my kids I said that, but um, that was Joseph. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. And one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. One night, Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in a field trying to bundle up grain. Suddenly, my bundle stood up, and your bundles all gathered around and bowed, before, bowed low before mine. Real smart. His brothers responded, So you think you will be king, do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. Soon Joseph had another dream and told his brothers about it. Listen, I had another dream, he said. The sun and moon and 11 stars bowed low before me. This time he told the dream to his father as well as to his brothers. But his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that, he asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. 
For the sake of time, I'm going to kind of paraphrase the rest of Joseph's story. Um, Joseph's brothers hated him so much, they decided to kill him. And kind of a last-second change of heart, they instead of killing him, they sold him into slavery. Joseph's taken to Egypt, where he becomes a slave of a, in a rich man's house. Uh, he works his way up to kind of head butler of Downton Pyramid, I guess. And because he uh, was wrongly accused by Lady Potiphar, he winds up in prison, where, um, again, he kind of works himself up to be head prisoner, um, the guy who was responsible for making sure all the other prisoners were fed. And this exposure, uh, this kind of exposure to all the prisoners, brings him in contact with two other prisoners who had had a dream. And uh, Joseph, uh, the dreams were kind of serious, um, and they he can tell something's wrong with him and he asks him and they tell him about the dreams. And uh, <laughs> this is actually the part of the story that freaks me out the most because if I'm Joseph at this point, no way do I uh, give the answer Joseph gives. If, if I'm Joseph and I'm a prisoner and two guys come and tell me about their dreams, I say something along the lines of, fellas, if you know what's good for you, forget you had those dreams. I had a dream once. I lived in a big family. We had everything we need. I was kind of the favorite. My life was good. And then I had a dream. And as soon as I had a dream, everything fell apart. And now I'm here. Nothing good comes from dreaming. If you know what's good for you, Baker, if you know what's good for you, Butler, you will forget that dream. But Joseph's better than me because he doesn't. He tells them what the dreams mean. And, uh, and he interprets them correctly. And before long, Joseph, two more years later, actually, Joseph is, finds himself standing in front of Pharaoh talking about dreams again. And he interprets Pharaoh's dreams and finds out there's going to be seven great years followed by seven horrible years. And Joseph devises a tax plan whereby they can build up a surplus during the seven good years that, they, that will ride them through the seven down years and sustain the country. Joseph winds up through this whole process the second most powerful man in the known world at the time. So Joseph finally comes into his own and fully moves into this new life without a glance in the rearview mirror. And the famine that gave him his fortune hits his family. They come to him and, uh, and they need food. And the confrontation reads something like this. So Joseph was governor of all Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people. It was him it was to him that his brothers came. When they arrived, they bowed before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph recognized his brothers instantly, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where are you from, he demanded. From the land of Canaan, they replied. We have come to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him. And he remembered the dream he had had about them many years before. This is the word of the Lord. I chose this passage this morning because... We're sitting this morning in a dream that uh, a dream or a vision that God gave me 27 years ago. So as we continue to kind of commemorate our new space um, and our new venture into Wellsville, I thought it might be a good idea to look back at how we got here. And because Joseph's dreams has some similarities to mine, I thought maybe we could draw some principles out of his dream uh, to help navigate some of the inherent tension of living in a God-given dream. 27 years ago, Esther and I were in Bible college. The little fellowship of churches that sponsored the Bible college that we were going to um, had congregations in Kansas City and Colorado and Michigan and California. And Esther had some 
family in Florida, and so I came up with a bright idea as God kind of started giving me the passion to be a pastor. I got the idea that we could plant a church in Florida. So that was my, that was my dream. We're going to plant a church from the ground up in Florida. And I've now vacationed there twice, and if I had had any idea that it was the humid armpit of America, I would absolutely in no way have come up with that dream. But, um, but Kansas, is, Kansas is much better. Anyway, I didn't know that at the time. But from this point on, um, once I first dreamed of planting a church, uh, 25 years passed before we actually did it. Not only that, but um, by the time Open Table Community Church popped on my radar as a possibility, I'd given up on my dream completely. I had literally let the dream die and I had moved on. So when I read Joseph's story in Genesis, I can't help but uh, feel like several of our ideas of what it means to have a God-given dream might be wrong or at least misunderstood. For instance, Joseph never chased his dreams. You know, we're told today, pursue your dream. Chase your dreams. Don't give up on your dreams. Live the dream. From the moment Joseph has his dream and shares it, his life goes 180 degrees away from the dream, or seems to. Never does he pursue his dream. He dreams that his brothers will bow down to him, and before he knows it, they're not only not bowing, but they're selling him into slavery. Joseph's not chasing his dream to be a big shot to whom his family will one day bow. But that doesn't mean that the dream doesn't change Joseph. When Joseph uh, worked as a slave, he quickly works as a person who, to whom people might bow. As soon as he saw himself as this figure to whom people might bow, it started to change his character. So when he winds up working for Potiphar's house, without trying, he's not trying, like at that point, the idea of his brothers bowing to him has got to be completely out of his mind. That doesn't mean he doesn't see himself the way the vision portrayed him. So he starts to live as a person worthy of the vision. And before you know it, he's ruling Potiphar's house. In the grand scheme of things, he's still a slave. Nothing's changed in his situation, but he's not living like a slave. He's living a life he can be proud of. He has integrity. He's working hard. He's doing what he needs to do. He's becoming the type of person the dream would fit. When Joseph gets wrongly accused and winds up in prison, his position is so low there's no way his brothers, if they knew he was still alive, would have even come and visited him, let alone bowed to him. And yet he still winds up working his way up to head prisoner, given the liberties to move about the prison and see to it that everybody else gets fed. Joseph isn't chasing his dream, but he's becoming a person worthy of his dream. This is one of the problems with dating today. Everybody's looking for Mr. Right or Miss Right, when what they should be doing is working on becoming Mr. Right or Miss Right. Instead of chasing a dream, we should become a person worthy of a dream. If you have a vision or a dream of being a boss someday or owning your own company, you don't chase the company. You become the kind of employee you hope to have someday when you are a boss. You become a person worthy. Otherwise, you get a company and you've got no character to hold up the company and it crumbles. So when God gives you a vision, you don't chase the vision. You become a person 
You let your character change into a person worthy of the vision. From the moment I felt the call to plant this church, the circumstances of my life went exactly the wrong direction to be a church planter. I quickly got caught in the rat race of paying bills and, and working hard just to keep everything afloat. I started a small remodeling company. I had about a thousand kids. Like everything you don't want to do if you want to be a church planner, we did. And everything went completely the other direction from the dream. But because I had a vision, because I had a dream, I went to Bible college. And after Bible college, I spent about two and a half years, somebody bought me an audio Bible on cassette tape. Okay, millennials, cassette tapes are these things that we used to, no, kidding. And for two and a half years, 10 to 12 hours a day, all I did was listen to the Bible over and over and over again. It took me about two and a half weeks to get all the way through it. And then I would turn it, cycle around, do it again. I did the math one time. I think I listened to the Bible 70 or 80 times over those two and a half years. I've listened to, I've read hundreds of pastoral and theological books. I spent three years taking online seminary classes. And never was it like, I want to, I, this is what I have to do to become a pastor. Never was it, this is, this is, you know, once I finish this, then I can become a pastor. I, from 92, when I got the vision, I felt like I was a pastor. And I just did this stuff because I thought that's what pastors did. That, that this, is, this is what I'm supposed to do to become the kind of person that pastors. I studied church history and none of it was so that I could have a dream. It was just because I felt like I already had the dream. I felt like I was a pastor because God told me I was. And so I did things that pastors did. Honestly, if I'd put like a fraction of the time I put into studying theological stuff, into actually studying business or remodeling, I probably would have made a lot more money. But I didn't. Once Joseph saw himself as someone to be respected, a leader of men, the kind of person to whom someone might bow, it didn't matter if he was running another man's house or in prison or standing next to Pharaoh, he became the kind of person to whom someone might bow. It changed his character. Joseph didn't pursue his dream. He became his dream. The reason I know this is because of one little word that is recorded when Joseph's brothers finally do bow down to him and the dream is fulfilled. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him and he remembered the dream. Joseph remembered the dream. He had to remember the dream because he had forgotten it. For some reason, I've read Joseph's story probably a hundred times, and I've never thought of this before. I've always imagined Joseph living under the pressure of this dream, like that every step of the way when he's getting sold into slavery, he's like, wait a minute, this doesn't fit my dream. And when Potiphar's wife is accusing him, he's like, hold on, I'm supposed to be the guy that everyone bows down to. And when he's in prison and, and, and you know, rotting away, he's like, wait a minute, this doesn't fit my dream. You know, when the when he interprets the two guys' dreams, as one of them was leaving, as the cupbearer was leaving, Joseph says, hey, when you get to Pharaoh, tell him about me. Uh, that I, basically, I guess that I can interpret dreams. And the cupbearer forgets all about him. It's two years before the cupbearer remembers. And that was only because Pharaoh had a crazy dream. And I'm imagining Joseph sitting there for two years going, what about my dream? And then I read this this time through. And I realized Joseph forgot the dream. He'd moved on. It wasn't until the dream was actually being fulfilled that he's like, oh my gosh, this is the dream. 
when we started Open Table, I actually resisted. For the three or four years before we started Open Table, I had uh, let the church dream die. It was like a death. It, it was painful. It hurt so much, but it didn't hurt as bad as holding the dream and not seeing it come to fruition. So I let it die. And then one day we were out at lunch with some friends and and they were going through a lot and their faith was being tested and they were struggling. And, and just on a whim, I guess I let the pastor out. I spent about 45 minutes encouraging them and quoting scripture to them and, and, uh, and kind of preaching to them. And, and in my peripheral vision, I could see Esther crying. And so I assumed I'd said something stupid because usually when she cries, that's why. Um, and so we get in the car on the way back and I was like, what I say? And she was, and, uh, she was like, what? I was like, I saw you crying. And, and she goes, I think it's time to plant the church. And I was like, you know, what? She's like, I had not realized how much you were dying. Like, I haven't seen the pastor in you in, um, in years. And I forgot how much I miss that guy. She goes, I think it's time. And so, I ha- and so I'm sitting there like Joseph, and he remembered the dream he had had years before. I'd, I'd let it go. So here's what I've been learning about dreams that God gives us. This comes a little bit from my story, but mostly from Joseph's story. First is that if God gives you a dream, he will fulfill it. He will absolutely fulfill it. You can count on that. You can take that to the bank. If he gives you a dream, he's going to do it. And the second thing I've learned is that it is going to look nothing like you thought it was going to look. God will fulfill your dreams. He'll do it in such a way that you'll be the most shocked when it happens. You'll stand there like Joseph going, I, what? oh my gosh, oh my gosh, now it all makes sense. This is what it was all about. God will give you a dream and then he'll work it out so weird that you'll be shocked when it happens. How many people have a vision of what their marriage could look like, what God wants to do in their marriage, so real they can see it? And it's not until their marriage falls completely apart or sometimes even fails altogether that they start to build up the marriage they saw in the vision in the first place. Though God will always make good on his promises, if Joseph's story tells us anything, it tells us that it'll look nothing like we expect. And on this trip through Joseph's life, I think I figured out why. When Joseph and his brothers finally get real with each other about everything that had happened between them, Joseph gives us an amazing look into his heart. The story reads like this. Please come closer, he, Joseph, said to them. So they came closer, and he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. Oops. Look at how much Joseph, whoops, oh, I, guess, I guess I did need it. Look how much Joseph changes between when he has the dream and when he sees the dream fulfilled. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in a field trying to tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly my bundle stood up and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. That's the beginning of his story. The end reads like this. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. 
when Joseph receives the dream, it was really all about him. him. It, was all, it was all about himself. He was the central figure of that dream. The dream was about his position, his ascension. By the time the dream is fulfilled, not only is Joseph no longer the central figure of his own dream, but he counts everything he's been through as worthy if it helps to save others. I think the reason that God works out Joseph's dream the way he does through all the dark twists and lonely turns is because Joseph's character needed to be cultivated until the dream was not about him but about others. This is one of the toughest revelations in Christianity, I think. And it's as old as God's call to Abraham. God told Abraham, I'm going to bless you, but through you, all the, the kingdoms of the world will be blessed. Through you, all the families of the world will be blessed. Through you. If you feel like being part of the people of God makes you special, makes you blessed, make you, makes you chosen, then I think you've missed the point. Being the people of God makes you the blessing. God didn't choose you to put you on a pedestal. He chose you to put you to work. We're the blessing. We're the ones who have been called to go out and do good. We're the ones who have been called to go out and push back the darkness. He didn't call us so we can sit here and revel in our blessedness. He called us so we could go be a blessing to others. So we can go out and advance the kingdom of God and do good. Be a light. He chose us to spread love, make the world better. Joseph wasn't chosen, chosen to be bowed down to. He was chosen to save people. He was chosen to save his people. And by the time he was bowed down to, all he cared about was saving people. So how do we respond to this? Personally, in your own life, I would, I would ask you to examine your dreams. What dreams has God put on your heart? What do you feel he's called you to? What are you passionate about? As you identify those things, ask yourself this question, how does this dream bless others? How could this dream be bigger than me? How do I decrease in this picture so God and others can increase? Because honestly, when you have the character where your dreams are about something bigger than you, you're probably finally ready for your dreams to come true. So dream big, make big money, climb the ladder, start companies, get a great education, succeed. I'm not suggesting everybody go into ministry. We honestly need people who are committed to advancing the kingdom of God, not in ministry, out in the world doing amazing things in every company out there, being a blessing. This has very little to do with what we do and has more to do with how we do it and why we do it. So please wrestle with that question. How do I make my dreams bigger than me? And corporately, I think we've got to know that Open Table Community Church has to be a blessing. We aren't here for us. We're here to do good. We're here to be a light. When people come in here, we have to understand that we're here for them. They don't come in here for us. We're here for them. We exist so people can feel welcomed and loved and connected and drawn to Jesus. If ever we feel elite or better than anyone who walks in here, we've missed it. We've failed. 
I don't care who they are. God called us to be poured out as a blessing for others as a church. When I first knew that I wanted to be a pastor, it was all about me. People had told me I had a propensity for seeing nuance in Scripture and teaching it to others, and I liked it when people said that kind of stuff about me. The pastors I knew were well-respected, and, you know, I liked that. It was kind of like being a rock star for nerds, and so that felt right to me. Now I am a pastor, and I feel like the least worthy person to be standing up here. If you're new here, if you ever try to put me on a pedestal, I will fall off that sucker daily. Like, you'll learn real quick I don't do pedestals very well. And I'm not saying that to be humble, because I'm not. I'm as full of myself as everybody else. But I want us to be a blessing. This can't be about our agenda, my agenda. This has to be about us just working together to push back the darkness. Joseph hit a point in his life where he basically said, if betrayal and slavery and imprisonment and abandonment is the price for saving people, then I'm glad I paid it. And isn't that the nature of the gospel? We're about to gather around a table to celebrate Jesus deciding to pay the price so others could be saved. Jesus setting aside his own desires, his own will, his own hopes and dreams, taking a universe that was literally built around him and making it about somebody else. And that's the gospel we serve, a Jesus who gave himself up for us, who poured himself out for us. If our dreams aren't about that, then we need a new dream. If our dreams are just big enough for us, then we need a new dream. We need to dream bigger. Let's go to the table. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you gave yourself for us, that your vision included us, that for the joy that was set before you, the saving of many souls, you endured the cross, that you didn't make it all about you. You made it about others. Oh, Jesus, give us a little bit of that vision. Give us a dream like that where we are willing to to dream beyond our own desires, our own wants. Help us to be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.